0: everybody thanks again for joining me on that's criminal uh i got nothing new to report on the writing front this week just uh knocking out the new project with the boys so tonight we can get right into it um tonight we're going to talk with margaret press founder of the dna doe project Uh, in an intro uh, to answer a burning question how can investigative genetic genealogy help identify john and jane does margaret press co-founded the dna doe project in 2017, with forensic geo- genealogist Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick. After months of work hunting down labs, experts, bones, and donations, they tackled their first case in September 2017 and incorporated it as a nonprofit the following month. The subsequent success provided the answer persistence, patience, and a team of skilled and spirited volunteers is how it gets done. Margaret grew up in Los Angeles, California, where at age 15, she inherited a passion for genealogy from her grandmother. While working most of her life in software development, Margaret also fell in love with mystery writing. Two published novels set in Salem, Massachusetts, were followed by essays and short stories and a true crime book based on a 1991 murder in her own neighborhood. When DNA testing redefined the genealogy landscape, Margaret joined the impassioned group of citizen scientists who would propel this new field to where it is today. Margaret is a proud parent and grandparent with descendants of her own to carry on her mitochondrial haplogroup C1D and passion for genealogy down her family tree. Uh, The DNA Doe Project is a 501c3 nonprofit with a simple humanitarian mission to identify John and Jane Doe's using investigative genetic genealogy. On March 5th, 2018, they solved their first case, Robert Ivan Nichols, the John Doe previously known as Joseph Newton Chandler III. On April 11th, 2018, DNA Doe joined local authorities at a press conference in Troy, Ohio to identify the young woman known as Buckskin Girl as Marcia L. King. The first time in history that the world learned of the power of investigative genetic genealogy to solve cold case identifications, and to date, they have Solved a total of 212 cases in just a very short time. So, Margaret, thank you very much for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me, John. I appreciate it.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Like we talked about a little bit uh, earlier, um, I first heard of you on uh, Dan Cummins' Time Suck podcast. They they were donating to uh, to your 501c3 that month, and I immediately was just like, uh, "I got to talk to I got to talk to them. I got to figure out what they're all about because it's." Uh, You know, the cold cases, the giving names to the nameless, you know, uh, bringing victims home, so to speak, is is very important to uh, to to me and, you know, imagine everybody and obviously you. So I, I just wanted to uh, ask you how um tell me about DNA Doe.
1: Well, um uh- you covered a lot of it really well, <laughs> so, so I almost don't need to say anything further. But yes, we did start in 2017, and at the time, did not, we're not aware that there was actually another person, uh, Barbara Ray Venter, working in parallel with the FBI on the Golden State Killer case and a couple of other cases as well. But nevertheless, uh, we were working without a manual, without any background. We didn't know how to do this. We didn't know if it would work. Uh, the people who do this work, and including ourselves, are people who are using uh, genetic genealogy, which is using DNA testing in addition to regular genealogy—you know, paper records research—to solve our own fam- family trees. In some cases, a lot of people are looking for their birth fathers or helping friends, which is essentially what I was doing in those years, um, and. Helping friends find their who they really are. Uh, And everyone says they grew up with loving adopted families, etc. It's not about uh, denying what a family is. It's that they want to know genetically where they came from, why Mm -hmm. they have certain smiles or mannerisms or Traits, if you will. And so when they finally connect with a birth family, it is such an overpowering, overwhelming experience to have helped in that, that I stopped researching my own family 15 years ago. So wow. uh, it's been a, a, a really amazing journey. I think everyone in this field, we're puzzle solvers, so we get a lot of our kicks out of finding answers uh, and digging we're all great researchers, we we love history, all the bits that we uncover in this. So, so I think the long-winded answer is we started by asking that question, why can't this method that we've used for adoptee searches be used for John and Jane Doe's? Because essentially we're looking for their parents, right? As we narrow down who they might be. And ultimately as their parents or their siblings or their children, that is the end objective here is returning these people, not just putting a name on a headstone or allowing a medical examiner to correct a death certificate, uh, which is what we see, the, the law enforcement end, but knowing that now a family that's been looking for decades finally has their answer, even though it's bittersweet and does not really provide closure in the sense we think of it, but it's about the families and the communities that we are helping that drives us. And that brings the the the, the amazing experience of our adoptee birth family discoveries up another order of magnitude because now it's about justice and in some cases, public safety—if there's a homicide involved—but um, ultimately, it's it's helping a family in a very, very deep and needed way.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it, it's and it um, one of the things that, that got me into it was uh, I went down that genealogy rabbit hole I, at one point myself. I was just like, you know, you want to know because the family's always got stories, you know, and it's big right. family I come from, and then you hear conflicting stories, and it always seemed like every uh, St. Patty's Day, it's like, well, we're Irish, I'm like, well, but grandpa said we're from germany <laughs> and it's like, no 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 we're irish trust me so so, right. so I, I remember i did my own and i saw i was branching out into different places and then like and ancestry comes around and and i just uh i was I, I remember there were parts of my family that were like i don't want to know any results if it doesn't say i'm not 100 percent irish and i was like I was we like, "Don't want to know." Yeah, they're like, <laughs> "We're not going to kill the, we're not going to kill the culture." I was like, "I don't know about that." And then it comes back, and I'm a complete mutt. I'm from a little bit of everywhere, and I was like, "I love this." I was like, "You know what? Today, today I can claim my 17% Scandinavian Viking heritage, and tomorrow I'm going to claim my, my Spanish Iberian Peninsula heritage. I love this. Like you know, exactly, can, you can, I can be you can whoever your- I want."
1: You can wear your kilt, the old Ancestry ad, right? You can wear your kilt one day and then your hosen another day uh, or exactly. your Viking horns or yeah. go claim your land in the Orkney Islands or whatever. No, it's really fun. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, welcome to the club. And yeah, there are families that don't want to know. And we respect that. We only work directly with the adoptee. For example, we do not reach out to their half siblings and say, hey, guess what? We know something about your daddy that you don't know. Uh, So that's part of what we learned in the adoptee search phase that carried over very well to the law enforcement stage where you need to be really sensitive about what you could be doing to a family if you if you mishandle the truth that you find. Because many families justifiably don't want to know the truth. And that's their right. That is totally their right.
0: Yep, and it's uh, it's one of those things where you know you can walk into a uh, you know, snake's den, um, by oh, by giving yes. away the wrong information at the wrong time, and just that that Thanksgiving just blows up, right? <laughs> yeah. So that's you know, a, that's a fine line you got to walk.
1: There goes that turkey, right? Right. Someone throws it through the window. No, it is. Families are complicated, and especially when you're dealing with different. Definitions of family, right, and different definitions of personal identity. So, if this is at the core of who we are. That's what makes this whole field so extraordinary. It's not just that suddenly a new field is is has you know jumped forth into the world. The most important law enforcement investigative tool in decades just decades it's widely acknowledged to be that um but it's also part of the the human story that that appeals to us all we're hardwired to want to know who are you know who our pack is oh yeah do, do, are we part of this pack or another pack or multiple packs because being human means there's a lot of levels to being in a pack so yeah, yeah.
0: And- and I've found that, uh, you know, with the expansion of, of things like ancestry and all that stuff, it's, it's so much fun just to show how absolutely, you know, blended the human race is. It's like, you know, yes. it's, uh, you I, there's, I have zero interest in challenging somebody's perceived, you know, whatever their racial identity is. But when you look at it, right. it's like, everybody's just a complete mix. It's just that that's the way it is. And it's, I think it's a, uh, I think if if people embrace that I think it, I think it could help a lot of stuff if people just embrace that everybody's just just a big hodgepodge of people that have been floating around for a few you know 100,000 years or so right,
1: right Exactly exactly you know there was a wonderful ad a few years ago and I forget where it was whether it was an ancestry or 23 andme me or my heritage ad uh, that I saw on TV where they brought together I don't know 50 people from all over the world And started out with what were their preconceptions of who they belonged to and what their identity was. And some of them were pretty racist, frankly. It was a a little shocking because some of us don't go in those circles enough to realize how prevalent it is. So they started out with all their self-identifications at the beginning and their alliances. Then they all took these tests. And it was so emotional to see them realize that, no, they actually shared a lot of DNA. And identity with people that they had been very felt really antagonistic towards there were a lot of emotion and hugging and an amazing ad I don't even know where it was anymore, but yes that 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 is the ultimate truth here is we are all one in the same family
0: yep yeah, and it's 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 just amazing to be able to track all that um so you've taken this this love of genealogy and and placed it into this when you Decided to make that your mission, you know, identifying, bringing names to these these unidentified um, individuals. Uh, You know, you said you went apart, went to get, um, went about trying to find the labs and then find the team. So, how would you approach these experts and be like, "Hey, I got a plan. What
1: do you What do you think? (laughs) I don't know. Well. So the inspiration actually came because I I just retired and I was catching up on my reading of mystery books. So I read, uh, I got up to Cues for Quarry, a Sue Grafton series, you may know. Um, And uh, Cues for Quarry, unlike all the others, even though it was fiction, she said in her afterword, the inspiration came from a real Jane Doe case in Lompoc, California from the 60s. I don't even think I knew the word. I, I was so... Those were not on my radar at all. And to read this, I was so moved by it and her efforts. She had paid for an exhumation when she got interested in the case, uh, had a facial reconstruction done and uh, DNA taken, because in this was 2003 or something. Um, and she was appealing to her huge readership to call in any tips if they recognize this woman um i slammed the book shut with this huge epiphany i was working on adoptees and suddenly i saw this whole new application so i reached out to her to see if anybody else was had thought of this or if the case was still open um and then i started reaching out to ancestry and family tree dna and all the companies i knew about to see if if we could get dna from a a dead victim would we be able to upload it in their database and thus figure out who they were and i was all the responses were no can't do that we won't get involved with cases like that they can't be dead whatever mm-hmm. and so i was met with a lot of naysayers saying it can't be done Yeah, you know, people have wondered about that for a long time but there's no way to do it i mean who's going to give us the dna who's going to process it etc so over the course of several days i then asked Colleen Fitzpatrick the same question because I knew she was very interested in uh, aspects of DNA in forensics. She also said it can't be done, but as I described to her my idea, and because I'd done a little searching on the internet and I saw how somebody could take DNA from a dead person, namely their father, and put it Through a a third party lab, not one of these direct to consumer companies, but a a whole genome sequencing lab Mm -hmm. um, and then uploaded directly to GEDmatch, which is a third party website that does not do DNA testing, but accepts files from any other company. That Mm -hmm. was the second epiphany that was really the solution to how we could conceivably go about doing that. Now, that's when Colleen said You know, you got it. That's how we'll do it. Let's give it a try. She had all the access to the U.S. Marshals Office in Ohio, uh, some uh, agencies in Washington State, and other people because she had been working on a different aspect of forensic DNA. So that's that's essentially what we did. Then we spent the summer finding a lab that would work with us, that would work with DNA that was so degraded that we only had little bits that would be usable and that took several months but ultimately we succeeded there
0: yeah i uh i remember and it was another thing that popped in my head when i first uh, started looking at at the project i only worked uh, like one exhumation uh it was a cold case way back in fbi days but it was it was ironic in that it was i was in um uh, upstate New York. And I was, I grew up there and I was in the, out of the Buffalo field office. And I remembered this case when I was a kid, it was a woman found on the side of the throughway, uh, no ID, um, no nothing. And ended up in a, in a unmarked, you know, a, a DNA, a, a doe grave. And it was, you know, and I forgot about it, you know, it's just whatever I'm a teenager. I it's gone now. Um, so, you know, give me 20 years later, uh, as part of the ERT, I volunteered to go out and help, collect dna out of this grave so we went out and and they dug it up and it was it's kind of a sad somber thing i mean by then mm. she had been identified but so we weren't looking to get an identification on her it had been linked to a cold case and then we had we needed to retrieve dna from her remains to link to of all things a uh, a trunk a carpet from a trunk that had been found in ontario canada that had been linked yeah. to this now 25 30 year old case, and they were like it might be her um wow. and, it, and my yeah. fascination for DNA just came out of all that because as we you know they spent time digging it up as we bring it up, the uh, chamber had been flooded, and as yeah. it comes up the the coffin's so degraded it's just gushing gallons of water, and we're all standing around being like, this thing has been underwater for who knows how long we're only we we grab uh, the femur and the jawbone and yep. then um and then we you know the the family had the remains cremated and it was kind of a sad thing that you know we take the parts that maybe we got our best chance of but then you got to, you're you're standing there watching this person be you know cremated you got you you're you're there and you're the last witness to that um right. and the whole time we're thinking like this is so unfortunate because all this has happened and these things have been so degraded over time and and the bones were almost squishy you know and and uh, crazy thing, I was like, there's no way they'll get something out of this. And they sent it off the lab. And sure enough, there's still enough there that I think it's, and you are going to know the terminology way better than me, but that's um, standard tandem repeats oh, or so, something, yeah, just being able right. to stretch. Short stretch tandem repeats.
1: Short. Right. Short tandem repeats. Yep. That, yep. That's the, those are and the markers is, they use in CODIS and yeah. uh, that. Once we make a, once we propose a candidate for identification, that's the next step. Is they need to go to an immediate family member and do those short tandem repeats, or we call them STR comparisons, yeah. because that's what's admissible in court. And so it's amazing, but probably they got it from the tooth if the bones were squishy. Yeah, the uh, jawbone
0: maybe, or the tooth, the, the tooth core. Right. It was a petrous
1: bone behind the jaw, but usually the teeth, if they're in good shape. That's an excellent source. We also have found that hair is a good source, uh, but that's recent and that's with a special special lab that we use. That's an amazing story because that is, especially when you were watching the cremation, you know, as sad as it was, my response would have been, can you please hold off until we know we got the DNA because we may need to go back and get more bones i mean that
0: that was it there was nothing left it was i mean it was yeah it was it was so it was so the skeleton had been so degraded that it it was basically the bag and whatever was left in it but yeah it was just uh i was just fascinated with the the whole dna thing because of course i collected it in cases and sent stuff off but you never see it you know because this these are live cases you know there might be an assault or something like that and you're taking swabs and stuff and sending them off okay cool that just came from a live person but something right. that had been in the ground for 30 years and it happened like, yeah, we got it. I'm like, how, <laughs> you know, it was fascinating. It was fascinating to see that technology. Yes. in
1: action. Yes. Now we've had some similar cases. We've been involved in some exhumations, uh, some intentional because they, they still want to make that identification. Our oldest case was one that was found uh, inadvertently uh, a backhoe unearthed, a broken up pine coffin and some bones, as part of a development area that they were working on to create a road um, and they gave us the bones because they wanted to rebury or give them to the family or figure out what they were. And it turned out to be, I mean, in those case, again, we've got a few bones and a few teeth, but it turned out to be somebody who died in 1852. Wow. He was actually buried on family property and we we were able to do some corroboration by finding some old plat maps where the owner of the property had the same last name as the as the DNA matches that we ultimately tied into the candidate. So fascinating case. Um, we've had a case uh, where the, the the victim was in a cave for since 1916 when he was murdered, oh. but he was mummified and the DNA looked like it was only a couple decades old. So Age and PMI, you know, post-mortem interval approximations are so hard to make uh, from a forensic anthropologist's point of view. But you also raise the point about bones being in water. Uh, we have cases like that, cases where they've been found floating in water, where, again, you have to forensic anthropologist or coroner, medical examiner will have to pick which samples to send in, which are going to which are going to survive that kind of uh, degradation from the water or bacterial contamination in soil or or degradation from heat. We've had that as well. Um, We helped identify for the victims from the campfire cases out here in California in 2018 um, after all the STR identification was done with immediate family for many of the victims. There were m- several left or they could not get the STR profiles uh, because they were too badly burnt, or there were not immediate families members, which is what you need in those sorts of comparisons. So that's when you go to other kinds of DNA extractions and methodology, and you have to rely on investigative genetic genealogy so excellent example and i can feel your excitement i'd get excited too well, it it's just yeah
0: it's just one of those things it's it's nice to have the chance and it was a, we were only a, me and a, my partner were only a very small part we were just there to cl- safely collect and get it to the lab the the, the case was being run um by the locals uh, the state guys it was state guys uh in new york but they were that we were only there to collect the evidence so we we had very little to do but it was nice to think that we had a shot like you said you know what what's the best chance of tying that that uh, sample from this you know 30 40 year old car rug to this person and right. finding some kind of answer and it, and it's yeah it's just it's fascinating once you start thinking about it um but it's a uh, it's very interesting that so you don't you guys don't just rely on technology you go back into the books and back into the uh back just tracing the family so there's there's some there's groundwork associated also correct
1: Well, that's most of what we do. So we start out with the DNA where uh, once the sample goes through the labs, and, and we don't ever handle the samples, we're just advising or shepherding with the agency. So we say, okay, send your tooth to this lab. And now that lab will send the extract to another lab for that whole genome sequencing, which is what we always use. And then it goes to what we call bioinformatics, which is yet another person who's an expert on taking that whole genome, which is 3 billion markers on your, on, on your DNA, every DNA ma- molecule, and reducing it, just pulling out the ones we care about, because we don't need the ones you share with chimpanzees or the rest of the human population on Earth. 99.9% of it is the same in everybody. So the bioinformatics person pulls out about a million of what we call SNPs not to be confused with the STRs it's a yeah. different kind of DNA it's a different kind of marker on your on your genome and he creates a smaller file that it looks the same as what people get from Ancestry or 23andme and that's what we can upload to GEDmatch and so that's that's when our work starts once it's uploaded that's when the genealogy research starts we look at at the the list of DNA relative matches that we get on that site. And we pick the top few that are the closest relatives because they share the most DNA. And then we start building trees for them. And then it becomes, you know, we look at Facebook for living people. We look at obituaries for dead people and we build and build and build and build. And we research like crazy. we look at records in a, you know, a Georgia, you know, Records Office, if that's what it takes, or, uh, um, you know, Washington State organizations, whatever we need to research. We're very, very creative and we're very good at being persistent and not giving up. And every little detail helps us. And sometimes we find, you know, record label contracts or foreclosures on properties or parking tickets they never paid. You know what? Because they were dead. And they were (laughs) missing and no one knew, you know, so we start unraveling and this and the person starts being pieced together in these really intriguing clues. And then suddenly this this is why this person matches all these people, because they come from this family over here and then they come from this family on the other parent's side. Suddenly it all comes together and it's a very exciting moment because then we do what we call a proof of life search before we tell the agency, we look to see if they, um, you know, if they, if they have a work history after a certain date, or if they were seen or somebody on Facebook has a picture of them after the date, the body was found. And if we can't find any evidence that contradicts our hypothesis, then we contact the agency and, and present them with the candidate. We say, this is the person we hope you'll, either roll in or roll out. But now it's back to you. We've done our job. We've done all we can.
0: That's, that's got to be incredibly fulfilling to, to uh, put the lid on something like that, just to present all that when, I mean, cause that sounds like a ton of work, um, which makes me wonder how many, uh, how many volunteers do you have working for you?
1: So we have actually 100 people now on our on our volunteer and staff uh, list where most of those, probably 70 or 80 or so, are um, genetic genealogy researchers doing the investigated genetic genealogy. We divide them up into teams. We're working, I'm guessing, about 50 or so odd cases right now. Uh, we ourselves have made identifications or been involved in identifications in probably 110 120. I think your number of 200 and whatever is is across the uh, community It's actually more yeah, was... leads than that. But um, the number 200 may be confirmed. Uh, I, I'm not quite sure because I I think For example, Parabon has done at least that. So I hear the number 800 cases or more where leads have been presented for either does or suspects across the industry. Okay. it's hard to track because it's hard to track because a lot of people like Parabon are not allowed to talk about their cases until they've been publicly announced. And from our experience, that can take over three years um, for confirmation or uh, notification um, during the pandemic, the STR confirmation was slowed down like by a year. Yeah. Um, but sometimes they're actually they're actually because they're open homicide investigations, and the agency doesn't want to tip off the suspect. So we we had a recent one announced in Nation a Nation River Jane Doe, a Canadian case, where it was three years ago we gave them the name. Um, but they were really trying to make progress on putting a, a case together before they could make an arrest on the suspect and it took that long
0: wow yeah the, i mean they do yeah the um the numbers i got were from the website and it was total identified 119 and then resolved by um dna doe project 106 so i might have okay and then but yeah that table just had 212 i was like and i was like wow good And and that was before you laid out all this to me i was like you know, just thinking of DNA labs and the backlog and how long it takes to get results back. I was like from 2017 to 2023, you've got even having 106 is just when right. I think of that timeline, that's, that's, in, that's a really good number, but then all the other stuff that your teams are doing, that takes just as long. And that's just wild to think that time frame you've had that much success.
1: And we're still working on a lot of active cases that are just really tough. Right. The number just shot up by two the last four days. We have uh, two more that we've presented. But of that 106, only I think about 80 or so are actually on our website as Success Stories because there's about two dozen where we've given the name to the agency and they still need to do that STR confirmation. And in some cases, they're having difficulty because if you think about it, if there's no immediate family, To compare with, they've got to figure out what they're comfortable with in terms of sufficient evidence to correct a death certificate, because a lot is is riding on these. Uh, I mean, in the campfire cases, as an example, they knew all along who these people were because the bodies were found in their own homes. And in a couple of cases, the wives knew they were missing. There was no question that they knew who they were. But that's not enough for a, a corner to close out a case, because especially if you think about the p g and e settlement and the life insurance, everybody wants proof. How do we know that this guy really was who you think he was? So that's where we came in to give a really detailed report of why the DNA evidence supported the identification,
0: yeah, yeah. and um yeah, I can just I, that's immediately I was like, yeah, the insurance company is they're not coming off money until they've got 100% confirmation and you can't blame them. I mean, that's, that's the job. Of course not. Um, right? Yeah, but, right. But yeah, it's... I can see that timeline stretching quite a bit.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So
0: I, I was thinking as we're talking, we, you know, we've been talking about uh, the the short tandem repeats and the process, um, We should probably for the people listening, go through what that is. So, and I'm going to butcher it, so please fix. Um, but in summary, just so, you know, just to fill the gaps, if, if you guys are, are wondering, so we get a sample whether it's a blood sample uh a, you know a, a, an existing uh marrow from a bone or root from a tooth it goes to the lab and for, to get that to get that full to take our our basically our architecture uh which is our dna and lay it out on a report uh they'll dissolve it and then they'll run it through uh, i don't know what the, i i want to I say chelation but i don't think that's it but they'll run What's... it through to stretch out those not snips, but yeah. If you want to fill that process in for me, and then how well, it gets I'll to ones and zeros, it. I'll
1: butcher it even more. But but I, <laughs> I'm used to butchering it, so I'll uh, I'm well rehearsed in this butchering. So basically, you have all your DNA strand. Every cell has the three billion markers that I mentioned. Where it's actually a base pair. Uh, I I won't try to spout off the chemical names about now, but they look like A T G and C. If you were to look at a text file of the report of for this location on chromosome, your first chromosome, the very beginning, it's going to have an A, then it's going to be followed by a T, then an A, A, G, etc. So that is what the end result of the whole lab, what we call the wet lab process is. We extract the DNA out of a tooth or blood or bones or hair or semen or whatever is at the crime scene, for example, um, which we don't do. But So once that extraction creates a liquid, that liquid is put through what's called library prep, where all kinds of things happen. It's chopped up into little pieces. Don't ask me why. But then they barcode each piece so that they can put a lot of cases in together, put them on the sequencing machine, which is a very expensive machine. It's a very expensive process, which is why they put 25 in at once, but they're all barcoded. So at the end, they can, they, they will get a huge digital file of all of these cases, all three billion SNPs uh, or, or, or base pair markers, the A's and the G's, et cetera. And then that gets sorted out and handed to the bioinformaticist who then Pulls out and creates this smaller file, as I said, which, if you tested at Ancestry or wherever you got your later hosen clues from, <laughs> you could download your file from Ancestry. And people are encouraged to because it's your data, you're entitled to it. You can open it up with any editing program like Word or Notepad, and you can look at it. It's, and it's wonderful for people too. Kids should, right? Oh, and yeah. it says, you know, chromosome one, position one, I've got an A or I've got a T. And that may make you unique from the guy next door, but it may be a position that you share with your kids, for example, who will get an A from you and maybe a G from their mom. So that's a butchered uh elevator version of the process the wet lab and then the bioinformatics and then that file is then uploaded to Gedmatch or family tree dna where we're able to where the software at those companies we don't see all the other people in the database the software at the companies looks through everybody else's a's and t's and g's and b's not bees, sorry. (laughs) Uh, And, and we'll give you a list of people who share a certain amount of those locations with you because the more they share, the more closely related they are. So if they share a significant amount, then you could conceivably find where they connect to you in your family tree. So does that help with the, have we butchered it enough together? That
0: was way better than anything I was going to come up with. So I was, I was drawn on, I was drawn on, uh, uh trying to remember what I, what I, uh, wrote in uh, my master's program and it was not going to be good. So you saved me. Thank you.
1: Well, <laughs> you got your degree, right? So, so it must've been good and close enough for government work as we say.
0: Literally. <laughs> okay.
1: So, wow. so yeah, that, that's where it begins. That's where, that's where it all begins.
0: Yeah and and you mentioned that I I never even thought I could download the blueprint of my of myself and compare it to the kids. I am definitely doing that. I can't wait to do that. It's yes. it's literally our blueprint on paper and and it, just, and it comes out of those samples that those experts are able to collect, which is fascinating, you know.
1: Well, and once you download your file, I don't know where you tested Ancestry? Uh, I think so. Okay. Once you downloaded it, then you can actually upload it for free to Family Tree DNA, to MyHeritage, to GedMatch, and also to sites like—I uh, always mispronounce it—Prometheus, which is owned by MyHeritage, where you can look at your medical traits and see if you have oh. uh, propensity for diabetes or for uh, schizophrenia or for blue eyes or whatever. It gives you as much medical information. 23andMe will as well. To a certain extent. So, uh, 23andMe, you cannot upload your file to, but Mm. you can pick up another DNA kit there for less than $100 when they're on sale and do the same thing there. So, those are the two companies that don't allow you to upload Ancestry and 23andMe. You have to do testing with them, but all the others will allow you to upload for free. And they have some really good tools and they have different ideas about your admixture, your ethnicity, or whether you share Neanderthal or or just lots of really interesting stuff. Every company is competing to give you more exciting information and reports. So you as a living person who can fog a mirror should take advantage of all these extra uh, things you can do. We don't get to do that as a quote-unquote law enforcement um, agencies of law enforcement because we're helping with with forensic cases
0: yeah it's uh it's it's fascinating though but i will issue a warning that that like we talked to in the beginning that that is a rabbit hole that you can you will slide down and it's hard to come out of once you start just that that's how interesting and how much there is to learn when you start looking at yourself and how you're built and all that all the other stuff okay. that you mentioned to uh, especially the uh, the medical stuff and then the uh the right. different tests for uh, it's it's a good it's a good time but I'll warn you it's you're going to lose time doing it
1: <laughs> well but there's another even more important warning and I'm glad you reminded me because we normally do put this right at the beginning if you cannot handle or do not want to know things about your parents that you did not know or that could be disruptive for your family or that could be, make them uncomfortable. Do not test. Just don't test. There's no reason for you to. But if you really want to know the answers to things, that's why people test.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's a a, a very uh, brilliant mentor of mine who uh, would always remind people that you never want to ask the question you don't want the answer to.
1: <laughs> well, that's... as I say in court or the questions you don't already know the answer to. Right? That's right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That, that plays against you. That's a that is for sure.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: So, um, so yeah, I, um, yeah, do you, uh, I was looking through the, the success stories on the, um, on the website and there's a, just a ton. Um, do you Uh have, uh, do you have any favorites that, that, that,
1: uh, I have so many favorites. I don't know where to begin and I don't want to. I could just go on for hours, but I could mention I'm trying to remember ones that I could actually mention some remember some details on. I think the one I've often talked about is our first one, the Joseph Newton Chandler, the third case that turned out not to be his real name. But that was how he was known. Uh, he was a man who committed suicide in Ohio back in, I think, 2000, 2000. Don't have the numbers in front of me right now. Oh, and um uh, t- two thousand and two is when he was found in his apartment. And the people who arrived thought it was very a routine suicide because he had uh, papers saying that he had a rental agreement, he had been working under the name Joseph Newton Chandry, co workers, he had left his uh eighty-two thousand dollar bank account uh, and had a a sister that he was his contact on his rental agreement, uh, who had been, was living in Cleveland. So they really thought it was a rather open and shut case until they, uh, unfortunately cremated him. Never cremate until you've actually (laughs) tracked down the next of kin. (laughs) So there's a lot of lessons to come out of this case. So then they tried tracking down the sister. She didn't exist. The address he gave them, it was a parking lot. Uh, (laughs) People at work said he was kind of a strange dude. Uh, They could really never get him to talk about himself. They started searching for the name Joseph Newton Chandler and found out that it belonged to an eight-year-old boy who had died in a car accident in uh, Texas back in 1945, I believe it was. So don't quote me on all these dates because I don't have them in front of me. But uh, then it went into a full-scale investigation because they needed to know who to contact about the $82,000 bank account, and who would claim the remains, et cetera. I mean, it, there's a lot of reasons why coroners need to identify people. Uh, yeah. it's, it's not just so they can check off a box. There's a lot of legal reasons why this has to be done. It's their job. To put the real identities on people, medical examiners and coroners. So uh, they reached out ultimately to the U.S. Marshals Office for help. They took over the case, Um, not sure the year, but uh, U.S. Marshal Pete Elliott of the Northern District in Ohio became really determined to solve this case. Tons and tons and tons of investigation. Uh, We've seen some of the reports, private eyes and looking into everything about him that they could. They came up empty. They just could not find out anything about why he stole an identity and who he really was. So they at one point figured out that they should check with local hospitals because somebody mentioned at work that he had been uh, diagnosed with cancer. And sure enough, they found a local hospital who had retained a biopsy sample from him from a few years earlier. And this is how I first found out the recipe online, is that hospitals will retain biological samples of their patients for 10 years. And a family member who has authorization can claim that sample and have it processed. So that's what the U.S. Marshals did. They extracted some DNA. They ran it through. CODIS, which existed by then, looking for STR matches and found none. Then they uh, heard about Colleen. They did they uh, hired Colleen to look at the Y-DNA on that case to see if she could come up with a possible surname. Uh, she came up with a possible name, but it didn't go anywhere because that's not a lot to go on Uh, then when Colleen and i got together that's the first case she thought of is to reach back out to the u.s marshal and said hey we've got this you know really screwy idea (laughs) and he'd run out of options there was nothing left for him so he bless his heart trusted us it was like a hail mary and he said where shall i send the dna extract i i was in shock we're just (laughs) citizens, right? Two little old ladies (laughs) who were hobby genealogists. But uh, we persuaded him that this seemed like it could potentially work. Um, We found that lab and did whole genome sequencing. And in September of 2017, we got that first file, uploaded it. And even though it took many, many bioinformatics attempts at that DNA to get one that actually had reasonable matches we were able to solve him five months later we were able to solve isn't the right word come up with an identity and uh and the U.S. Marshal of course couldn't believe that we had used witchcraft on this <laughs> yeah, but he right. immediately we gave him the, the names and contact information of a son and he wow. Jumped in his cruiser and drove four hours to knock on the door of the sun, get him swabbed, give him an ancestry DNA kit just in case. And a week later, we had confirmation from the uh, the, the the lab in Ohio that it was an STR match because we had a full uh, of a, a child of his. So that will always be my favorite case because it was our first. Uh, this was March of 2018 before a month before anyone heard of the Golden State Killer.
0: Wow, that's fascinating. And, that, and that's your first one. You just call a, a deputy marshal out of the blue, and he's like, "Yeah, why not? Let's do it." Exactly.
1: <laughs> exactly. I mean, what you trust us? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Wow, what a what a great way to start. That's like hitting a grand slam.
1: It it was the the press conference, and that was delayed uh, for a few months because he wanted to under he wanted to figure out on his end. His job was. Why? Why did this guy who had a purple heart in World War II, veterans benefits, a family, abandon them all in 1965 and essentially go in hiding? What what huge thing must he have done? And one of the things he had to rule out was, was he the Zodiac killer? Uh, Because some of the timetable was right. We've never they've never ruled that out. He's never figured out. But ultimately, they did come forward and announce his identification. But well, in the so, meantime, so my second fate. Yeah. Uh so what, what they never do? oh, they never figured out why huh. they never figured it out. He did abandon his family. So from the from learning from the family, uh, there was a divorce uh, and then he left. There was some communication ongoing um, with the family for about a year or so. And we don't know whether it was just a combination of PTSD from his he went through some horrible experiences in world war Two. uh it, it could have been we, we, we can conjecture um mm-hmm. yeah. but but we probably shouldn't it, it oh, it's, yeah, it's a mystery it's one we we often come up with an identification john and then we never no one ever figures out the final chapter why why did this woman end up dead in a ditch mm-hmm. why did the one uh you know a, a man with a with a family uh end up three states away with a bullet hole in his in his skull. You know, I mean, in one yeah. case, we found out the fa- family was the one that did it. But that's every everyone is a unique story. And we don't get to participate. In the final chapters, it's not our job, uh, it's not our business. But we are as curious as anyone, as you must be, you know. Oh, in yeah. the cases you, you're
0: involved with, right? You've you've got to have that that curiosity, even to have that original idea that you had. Just uh, you know that uh, that curiosity curiosity drives you know that genealogy in the first place. though to apply it to identifying these people is just such a such a great um, use of that of those tools.
1: Well, you too. Curiosity is what drives you, right? To do an right. investigation, it's the same. We've got the same gene. We could probably mm-hmm. find where we share.
0: <laughs> yeah, we got to compare our SNPs. <laughs>
1: we'll probably share that gene uh, that is, you know, curiosity and drive persistence.
0: Yeah, that's 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 amazing. Uh, you were gonna mention one more. Yeah, I'd love oh, to Oh yeah,
1: I, th- I think the second Kate, which was the first one we announced. Uh, One of our she was probably one of our first four buckskin girl uh, where she had been unidentified for 37 years. She was called buckskin girl because of a jacket she was wearing. She was another Ohio case out of Troy, Ohio, where she was found in a ditch within about 24 hours of her murder. So they had blood in a vial called heparinized blood. It was preserved um, and they shipped it off to a lab been kept at room temperature for 37 years Mm -hmm. Uh, but they got enough dna for us to do whole genome sequencing and after all that time where uh you know they had done isotope analysis to see where she had grown up or lived at various stages of her of her life based on where she had consumed water Uh, they had done pollen analysis on her jacket to see where she may have been in that jacket um, and fingerprints and everything they could. CODIS matching, nothing helped. Reconstructions, media outreach, nothing helped. And then, again, two little old ladies from California, as they joked in the press conference, (laughs) uh, got her DNA uploaded to GEDmatch and we identified her in less than four hours. That was then, released in a press conference a couple of weeks later in early April, 2018. uh, We flew out to Ohio for that. That was the first press conference on any uh, investigated genetic genealogy case two plus weeks before the Golden State Killer arrest. So that was the first time the world ever had any inkling about this tool, but she was a doe. So it didn't quite make the media splash. That Golden State Killer obviously did. That he was the the paradigm changing um, public awareness and law enforcement awareness uh, over the potential for this tool.
0: Yeah, uh, once that Golden State Killer um, thing splashed on the news, you could almost hear every cold case investigator in the country, you know, just jumping out of their chair,
1: (laughs) running to their office and going through their files. Absolutely. Right. Right. Yep. Yeah. The dam broke. The dam really broke.
0: Yeah. And it's great because, you know, there's a bunch of, you know, 70 and 80 year old men out there just sweating it every day, just wondering what they what they left behind in the 60s and 70s that might come back to haunt them.
1: (laughs) Well, it will. As long as you can get good DNA, there is a really good chance that with time, uh, someone will be able to uh, make that identification. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, we were uh, I was talking to Rod Sadler uh, a couple of weeks ago about a a book he just finished about a a case from the 60s that went unsolved in Mackinac Island. And it was the, you know, the same thing that, you know, with the investigators working an outdoor crime scene in 1960, no understanding of what DNA even was, um, but to have the professionalism and the technical expertise to capture those available items and preserve them in a way that, 60 years later, there's potential that you can go back and get DNA that they didn't even know they collected, you know, hold in the right. key to the city, so to speak, in a box in a storage place someplace that that now might be able to close cases. It's it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating.
1: Exactly. Yeah. No, uh, you know, we're so grateful for those people decades ago who were forward thinking enough or creative enough to imagine that there could be possibilities and to save that precious evidence.
0: Yeah. And to save it safely. Like you said, the the, the test tube of blood sitting at room temperature for 30 years, it's like, Ooh, that's scary.
1: Right. I mean, we we've gotten, or the labs we work with have gotten specks of blood off of clothing. That's probably where you got the carpet evidence, either blood or hair, presumably from her. Uh, people are getting touch DNA now which is really hard because then you have the possibility of a mixture because everyone's touched this thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But- that's uh, And that's, and that's funny, you know, and we've been talking about all these matches and stuff, but it's, it always comes back to, you know, you, we say, we mentioned CODIS and then we mentioned Match and all these other things, but all these great samples that are, you know, in a superhero way retrieved by these experts Without a reference yes. point, without a reference point, they, you still can't get it. So we can we can use all this technology and expertise, but without a reference to go by, you still it doesn't matter. It, oh, it's right? Fast. That's just one more bit of the puzzle. That's I always I always marvel at. You can you can probably tell I'm geeking out a little bit, but no, <laughs> that's, you that's know we can geek out together. Me. Sure, yeah. no, but that's
1: that's what makes us so fun. There's still a lot of challenges that we we don't yet know how we're going to get around certain of these uh challenges, but uh but that's what's exciting is tomorrow yeah. there'll be a way.
0: Yep. Yeah. Tomorrow, who knows what they're gonna say we've got available to us, which is just cool. It just right. keeps it going. Yep.
1: It really is. Um, yeah.
0: So yeah, I uh I think we could uh just looking at this uh success story page, I think we could probably go all night, but I told you I <laughs> wouldn't keep you more than an hour.
1: <laughs> right, <laughs> <This> is, right. <laughs> um, no, there's yeah, absolutely. There's yeah. there's so many. And as I said, each yeah. one is different.
0: Yeah, and uh, and I'd love to have you back sometime to to talk over your favorites. Um, but before I let you go tonight, I wanted to uh, see, do you have a way people can donate to uh, to DNA Doe? Or...
1: Thank you for asking. Right. If you go to our, our website, which is DNADoeProject.org, then you'll see uh, buttons on the homepage and on their donate page. And on many cases that are still in the labs... Or about to go to the labs where we need that funding in order to proceed, because these will cost the lab expenses are they're not, you know, $79 at Ancestry. They're $2,000, $3,000 when you consider the extraction and all the the sequencing costs, which are very expensive. So we were so grateful because many of these cases come from agencies with no funds. Mm -hmm. They may have a budget for a crime scene because they've got to catch killers but for those that need to go home to their families the budgets are often not there so we do appreciate anything people can 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 donate so yeah it's all on our website and we're Excellent. we're very grateful and thank you for bringing it up so i might oh, have abs- forgotten
0: absolutely i i love uh i love your mission and uh and i thank you very much for talking to me tonight
1: well it's been a pleasure john is it's, it's it's always a pleasure to talk about our, our mission, but we appreciate your having me on.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the invitation stands. Anytime you want to come back and chat about the uh, the wins, you, uh, you just let me know.
1: You'll be careful what you wish for. <laughs> <laughs> all
0: right. Well, all right. Well, thank you. And uh, thank you very much, everybody. We'll talk to you later.